Case 4, Catholic Church Abuse and a History of Misogyny, Chapter 2, on Rape. This last case study, like the artwork, is not a specific crime, but a broader discussion on a global issue of systematic abuse and violence towards a huge group of people. In the 21st century, many deeply devout Catholic countries have had to begin to ratify the deep-set issues that the Catholic Church has been hiding for centuries in some countries, especially in Europe and the United States. As this artwork doesn't deal with a specific story, I will just be talking more generally about the issues that have arisen in a few countries in regards to the Catholic Church. In most countries where the Catholic Church has taken root, there have been deep-set issues with the abuse of children, specifically young boys, across the world at the hands of Catholic priests and bishops, and the systematic cover-up by cardinals, doceses and even the Pope in resolving these problems when it has been brought to their attention. In 2002, the Boston Globe began an expose on the Catholic Church in Boston, as one of the largest congregations in the US, and found that not only had the church been aware of hundreds of priests that abused thousands of children in the area, they had also never been formally brought to the police and had been dealt with by the church. In most instances, this meant moving the priest to a smaller area without informing the parishioners of their history and paying off the families of those that were abused, with the US church forking out hundreds of millions of dollars to keep victims quiet. In some rare cases, this meant removing priests from the church completely, which you would think is all well and good, until you realise that the church would keep the records of assaults completely private to the church, rarely disclosing this information to law enforcement, so many were never lawfully punished for their crime, or registered on any lists, allowing them to work with children or in the church in other areas of the US. A similar story is found in Spain, Germany and Ireland, where historic sexual abuse crimes have only just begun to make it to law enforcement and to the media, with Spain, in my opinion from my research, being the worst to deal with the issues, as they seem to find it extremely hard to acknowledge their own cases of Catholic abuse, but will absolutely publicise similar issues when found in other countries. It is also one of the only countries that has not done a full investigation into the severity of the abuses by priests, where countries like the US and Australia have been able to determine that around 7% of their priests have most likely committed some form of abuse, leading to thousands of priests being abusers and hundreds of thousands of victims worldwide. Alongside the systematic abuse of children, Ireland has also had other issues, such as the horrific abuse of young mothers who were the victims of rape or promiscuous activity, according to the Catholic Church, that resulted in unplanned pregnancies and were housed by the church to hide them away from society. In many of these homes, the death rates for the newborn babies were extortionate. In some of them, it got up to being as bad as 75% likely that your child would die. Alongside the forced adoption of these children to other families in Europe, and the abuse of the mothers at the hands of the nuns that ran the houses. Similar issues were found at schools and workhouses run by the Catholic Church to look after low-income families also. In the 21st century, you would think that the Catholic Church, now that their secrets have been unravelled, would be trying their hardest to investigate to the fullest and modernise the Catholic Church to accept and repent for its sins. But unfortunately, it seems that a good proportion of the initiative taken by the Church in these areas have been for media attention and not for real change, which has been about as effective as sticking a plaster over a bullet wound. Although the Pope has made an international committee that is meant to discuss and investigate the issue of abuse in the Catholic Church, members that have left this committee have argued that it is for publicity and nothing more, and that no change will be enacted through a committee that meets a few times a year for a broad discussion of what is happening and does not propose any safeguarding measures that have to be followed by the Church worldwide. 
The systematic abuse by the church is one of a number of stories told by Leah Abril in her exhibition series A History of Misogyny, specifically Chapter 2, Rape, from 2020, which covers the stories of victims of rape from around the world in a variety of different ways. One room in her exhibition specifically displays the clothing that individuals were wearing when they were raped by their perpetrators, many of which have particularly harrowing stories attached to their imagery. Such as a Romanian bride who was a victim of the practice of bride kidnapping, in which men attempt to kidnap a woman of age to be married, and whoever kidnaps her becomes their husband, which can sometimes include the forced rape of the women as part of the claiming process. Or the image of a five-year-old girl's dress from when she was first victimised by a family member. As part of this collection, a nun's habit is also included, however I haven't been able to find the specific story. In other rooms in which Abril discusses how our cultural and spiritual beliefs surrounding rape have impacted how laws are shaped around the world, as well as when rape is seen as an acceptable form of punishment, such as part of cultural tradition or as part of an act of war in some countries by invading forces, Abril also displays a triptych of hundreds of blurred faces all of Catholic priests that have been found guilty or have been accused of abuse. Although only one example of a wider theme about our societal understanding of rape, who is and isn't a victim, and how ingrained rape culture and revenge against rape is placed within the media we consume, Abril tries to emphasise the need for change within culture and law, and broaden the spectrum of what we consider rape to be, who it can be committed by, and to whom. I think this is an important statement that needs to be discussed more commonly within the debate surrounding rape culture, as some individuals and countries don't acknowledge rape within marriage as being possible, and hold some fantastical idea that rape is always a horrifically violent situation by a stranger in a dark park, in a similar way to the Hillside Strangler and Central Park Jogger cases, rather than being instances where the individual knows their perpetrator, like in the Catholic Church and the Steubenville High School case, and that some individuals can walk away from a situation without knowing that a rape has occurred or without having the emotional understanding to know what has happened to them, which I think Abril covers very well within the exhibition through a multitude of different avenues. I hope that you somehow found a way to enjoy this episode, as it has discussed some very horrifying situations. I also hope that you learned a lot and found some new artists to be inspired by. Personally, I am specifically intrigued by the performance artists of the 1970s, and will be reading more about them when I can, or trying to find other episodes that I can weave in them into. Please let me know of any comments, feelings, and thoughts that you've had about this episode. If you want anything to watch on the theme, I have some recommendations below. If you want something on the theme which I find mildly funny, just because it really fits the age in which it was made, I recommend the TV movie about the Hillside Stranglers. It really gives me an 80s porno mixed with Murder, She Wrote vibes, and there are just moments that I found funny with some of the director shots or acting choices that seemed very different from the topic matter they were trying to depict. For my funny sentence of this episode, I am recommending a whole book just for the way that it was written, which is again about the Hillside Stranglers. The book Two of a Kind, The Hillside Stranglers by Darcy O'Brien, is written like no true crime book that I've ever heard of or read, where it is written from multiple perspectives, from the cops and from the killers, including dialogues which I can't figure out if they are real and taken from transcripts, or fictionalised and added in for flavour. These sections are the most harrowing, as the two killers discuss how they are going to kill others, and it's very disconcerting for the reader. It also really highlights just how disgusting these killers were in their outside lives, aside from being serial killers, as womanizers who repeatedly went after high school girls as young as 13, which I find particularly gross. I hope you all have a good month, I'm not sure what we will be talking about next time, but check me out on my socials, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, all under Art Crime International, to get a small hint here and there to see if you can figure out who or what I might be discussing in the next episode at the end of March. 
I'll hopefully see you all again soon, but in the meantime, stay safe and let me know of anything you want to see in future episodes. Goodbye for now. Case 3, the Steubenville, Ohio rape case and the hashtag Sweet Jane exhibition. Now, although the last case study made me mad because of the racial injustice that the boys faced in their case and the out-and-out racism of the American public and its media, this case makes me mad for a different reason, because of the lack of intervention and vulgar publication of the details of this crime by the perpetrators and their friends with little consideration as to what they had done. Some of you may have heard of this case because internet hacker group Anonymous became involved in finding information, as well as because the case was largely evidenced through text messages and social media posts. But if you are new to this crime, like I was, then welcome and get ready to get mad at the Steubenville High School rape case. I highly recommend the 2018 documentary on this case, Roll Red Roll, which is on Netflix, as it really explores the case, the town and the people involved. I also think it's worth a look just for the fire-breathing red horse that's housed in the football stadium of the high school. This case is a repetitive tale. A high school girl is assaulted by high school football stars in a small town where football is king. But this story does have a twist, in that the entire thing was texted, tweeted and Instagrammed about by those directly involved and the friends of the perpetrators. In August of 2012, Jane Doe arrived at a party for the big red football team to celebrate them winning a game one of a few parties happening in the area. Whilst at the party, she met up with Trent Mays, one of the star players for the Steubenville High School Big Red football team, who she had been talking with online for a little bit. She was excited to see him, got a little bit too drunk, and that is all she remembers from her night, before she woke up the next morning with Mays and a few of his other football team members in a basement living room without her underwear or phone. Unsure of what had happened, but knowing that something was off, She called her friends from the night before who had let her leave the first party with Trent and his friends after much argument and asked them to pick her up. After dropping off some of the other team members, her friend that had been trying to contact her all night because they had seen some of the stuff that was happening online asked her what happened. When Jane Doe couldn't tell her, her friends started to try and unravel her night for her. This unravelling later became the job of the police when they were handed a memory stick with screenshots and other information when Jane Doe's parents reported the case to the police three days later. Due to the lack of physical evidence, as the police believed there would be no point doing a rape kit or a blood test for any drugs on Jane Doe, as it had been too long after the incident for anything to be found, although this has come under scrutiny from some critics of the police department, this memory stick of screenshots became the beginning of their trail to try and find out what had happened that night. Based on this evidence and on some initial interviews with people who had been at the parties, Trent Mays and Malik Richmond were both accused of rape. This accusation made it into a small article in a local paper in Steubenville and was picked up by local crime blogger Alexandria Goddard, who used her investigative skills to search through the football players' social medias and collected several incriminating screenshots of them casually and jokingly discussing the rape of a quote-unquote dead girl at the August 2012 party. This included an Instagram post which showed Richmond and Mays carrying the girl with one limb in each hand like a rag doll as they tried to take her out of one party to another. After passing on this information to a police contact and gaining no response, Goddard placed them up on her blog with the limited details of what she knew about the case so far. This blog helped to draw in attention from larger media sources who began to discuss the issues of the case with some discussing whether a cover-up by the school district was occurring to allow some football players to continue on the team for their championship season, whilst the town created a victim-blaming 
he said she said rhetoric about the case arguing that the girl was at fault for being at the party for dressing provocatively on her instagram for getting too drunk and going off with the boys because boys will be boys as the saying goes whoever came up with that has a lot to answer for Aside from media attention, the blog also caught the attention of Anonymous, who hacked the school's football webpage and doxed the other football players that they felt were involved, including a 12-minute video that had previously never been seen, which showed a graduated senior of the football team joking about the rape, making some horrific jokes of how dead she was in comparison to the victims of famous murderers, like OJ Simpson. So a very, very tasteful 10-minute comedy set. After interviewing more people that were at the party and confiscating phones and tablets from some of these individuals, over 100,000 text messages and a few pictures managed to help the police put together a timeline of events. After Jane Doe left party A with Mays, Richmond and two other football players, which witnesses say was at her insistence as her friends tried to stop her from leaving with them, they arrive at party B where Jane Doe proceeds to look drunker and drunker and become more uncontrollable. This party is short-lived as the mother of the player hosting the party kicks everybody out who isn't sleeping over. This is when the infamous Instagram photo of Richmond and Mays carrying Jane Doe is taken. Once outside, Jane Doe throws up on the sidewalk and sits down, which she mildly remembers. Afterwards, she is picked up by Richmond, Mays and two other football players and put into a car and taken to Party C, which is just the five of them in one of the members' basement's living room area. Whilst on the journey over, Mays is accused of taking Jane Doe's top off and playing with her breasts, as well as trying to finger her in the back of the car, which one of the players had recorded but deleted off of his phone, so there is little evidence that this happened, aside from witness testimony. Once at the house, Mays and Richmond allegedly attempted to assault her in various ways. Mays attempted oral rape, but realised that Jane Doe was too blacked out and unresponsive for her to be able to participate in oral, and Richmond fingered her while she was naked on the living room floor. The other two individuals, who became witnesses for the prosecution after being given exemption from any crimes, apparently were not involved in the rape itself, but had witnessed the whole thing and had taken videos or pictures, apparently to show parents or police potentially down the line but their purpose and reasoning seems a little sketchy to me, personally. Anyway, with these testimonies, alongside the texts in which Trent bragged about what he had done with Jane Doe to certain individuals, while simultaneously denying the allegations to other friends and trying to get Jane Doe to reconsider her accusations because she knew that he was only trying to look after her that night and didn't actually do any of the things that everyone was joking about, the police managed to make a case against the two teens. Both were tried in juvenile court and sentenced to one year minimum for rape of a minor, as in Ohio, the use of fingers is also considered rape, with the possibility of staying in juvenile detention until they were 21 years old. Mays was given two years because of the dissemination of a naked picture of the high school student, which is classified as child pornography. And now that we are all up to speed with this crime, let's look at Andrea Bauer's exhibition entitled Hashtag Sweet Jane. For her exhibition, Bowers sat in the courtroom and hand-transcribed the text messages that were used as the major piece of evidence by the prosecution using pencil and paper, before turning them into large posters. At her exhibition, these posters, all created using blue markers in various shades, are placed around the room like a wave along the white walls, allowing for audiences to move around the room and read the case from the perspective of its perpetrators, witnesses and the victim herself in their digital imprints. 
She used blue markers in the work for two reasons. The first reason why she used the colour blue is because of its link to technology and social media colour schemes like Facebook, Twitter and iMessage. And her second reason for why she used markers as her main material was because of their prevalent use in high school to make signs for football games, posters and other handmade event signage. In a second room at the exhibition, Bowers placed snippets from the anonymous videos, as well as video from the protests that occurred in Steubenville after Anonymous's involvement, which became an opportunity for women in the town and nearby to discuss their own experiences of sexual assault and rape, highlighting a historic trend of rape by the football team in Steubenville, as well as a general issue of misogyny and rape culture in the town. The exhibition itself is interesting as Bowers allows the words of the individuals to speak for themselves and tell the story of the night in question and its aftermath by laying it bare in an easily digestible, symbolic and recognisable form as large text conversations. It also helps to comment further on the issues of rape culture in our society and the issues that the media have when dealing with issues of rape and sexual assault by misplacing support towards the perpetrators and the promising careers that they could have had and blaming the victim for being out of control, which reaction can be seen in the conflicting text messages by Trent Mays and the protests held by Anonymous in the town. Case 2. The Central Park Five and Sabine Women So this crime is also one that you've probably heard of before in the true crime space, or you've watched one of the several documentaries about the case, such as When They See Us on Netflix, or the Central Park Five film from 2012. As someone who is into true crime, but that lives in the UK, I've heard of this crime but always felt pretty detached from it, or never really understood how this investigation came about and its ramifications. However, after researching, I'm more angry than I have ever been about a case in a long time, and that is largely thanks to the book The Central Park Five, A Chronicle of a City Wilding by Sarah Burns, which does an excellent job of discussing the case, its ramifications, and the deep-seated racism that is involved, which I didn't fully understand before. Don't get me wrong, like, I fully understand that racism was there. I clearly had just never done enough research into this case to fully understand everything that happened. I'm going to try my best to summarise this case as she does. However, I highly recommend reading the whole book, as it has some very insightful discussions and links that I hadn't thought of before. On April 19th, 1989, a white woman was assaulted, raped and left for dead in a corner of Central Park in New York City. Her body was found in the early morning by two drunk construction workers that happened to walk through the park instead of taking the bus home, who originally thought they had found the body of a dead man in the park when they contacted Central Park Police. After realising the body was of a woman who was still barely alive, police scrambled to try and work out what had happened to her. However, this same night had not been a quiet one in Central Park. Between 8 and 9pm in Central Park, a group of around 30 black and Latino teenagers had entered the park, some specifically looking for trouble, others just to hang out with other friends in this larger group. Several attacks had occurred throughout their time in the park. A couple on a tandem bike were grabbed at as they went past alongside a few other cyclists. A drunk man was assaulted and had his food and alcohol stolen from him, and several male runners were severely assaulted by a smaller group of these teenagers in one of the corners by the park near to where the rape took place. By the time the police were informed of these events, many of the teenagers had left the park, but some of these teenagers were apprehended by police and taken to a precinct by Central Park to be interviewed about their involvement in these minor assaults, not the rape that the police had not yet discovered. 
However, whilst these teenagers were waiting for their parents to arrive so that they could be interviewed for their testimony on the events that happened in the park and sent home, the body of the jogger was found, who was taken to hospital with such severe injuries that doctors presumed that she would most likely die, leading the situation for the teenagers to get much more serious as all of them were beginning to be suspected by police as being the perpetrators of this rape and potential murder. However, none of these teenagers knew of the rape, were in that area of the park at the time it happened, and there was no evidence to place them at the scene of the crime, aside from the fact that some of them had been involved or had witnessed the other more minor assaults that had happened in the park on the same night. So how did the police reach the conclusion that all of these boys were responsible? Through racism, leading interrogations, and just generally bad police work. I can understand in the initial thinking of the police that it would make sense to talk to these teenagers about this rape as they were in the park at the time that it happened, and that some of them had committed other more minor assaults, so the rape could have been something they did, even if that in my opinion would be a very intense escalation of violence in a very small time period, or they may have seen someone else commit the rape. However, that is where my understanding of the police and their ethics when it comes to this case ends as all of the evidence in this case seemed to fall away from them, and yet they still managed to convict five teenagers for crimes they did not commit. Firstly, all of the teenagers and their families had issues in some way with the interrogations that were conducted by the police. The police have been accused of assaulting the teenagers to get a confession, using leading questions to get the answers they wanted from the teenagers, and that they only started writing down the testimonies of the teens once they started saying that they had some involvement in the rape, even if this was hours into testimony in the early hours of the morning after they had protested their innocence and realised it would get them nowhere. The majority of the teens and their parents also argue that the police promised they could go home once they confessed and signed their testimony or videoed a convincing testimony, which the police staunchly denies, but I hardly believe that they would not say something along these lines to get what they wanted from these teenagers. Secondly, each of these teenagers' official testimonies place the blame of the rape on other individuals, with each making themselves either a witness or only a minor player in the assault by holding the woman down in some way. Realistically, all of these teens and their parents did not understand that under New York law, as well as in other places, being an associate within the rape is just as bad as being the one to commit the rape in the eyes of the law, and that by admitting to being in the presence of the rape, these teenagers made themselves look more guilty than innocent and were giving the police the guilty confession that they wanted. Aside from the fact that nobody's timeline of events matched up, no one could accurately describe what the jogger had been wearing, what injuries the woman had and how they were caused, which were very specifically around her head and eye area and had been caused by a rock being smashed repeatedly into her head, or where the body was, how it had gotten there, and where the instance had taken place. For me, if I had been the investigator, these would have been the first big blaring red flags that these boys had nothing to do with this crime and had not witnessed it. However, the police continued to run with this theory and tried to use DNA evidence to back it up. DNA evidence was relatively new at this point in time in the 1980s, many courts and judges were not fully on board with it as reliable evidence, and it had only been used in a few cases to make a conviction successfully. The DNA in this case showed what we, in hindsight, already know, that the semen found inside the victim, which was a very small sample, didn't look like it matched any of the apparent perpetrators or the victim's boyfriend, who had been a very, very minor suspect in the case. Later DNA, however, found on the victim's sock, provided a stronger sample for semen than what was found inside her, and definitely proved that it did not belong to any of the supposed perpetrators or the victim's boyfriend, 
Did this evidence matter? Yes, it did. Did the police completely ignore what this DNA showed and continued with the prosecution of the teenagers anyway? abso frickin lootly Did they use unreliable hair matching techniques to try and match the hair of the victim to a hair found on one of the perpetrator's clothing because they looked the same? Not DNA matched the same, just looked the same? Of course they did. Looking back on this case, there are so many policing issues, but a wider issue of racism is also extremely prevalent, which also needs to be explored. The city of New York in this period was at its height as a dangerous city. The use of crack cocaine was skyrocketing in the city, and rape and murder rates were extremely high. This rape wasn't the only one that happened that week, and it wasn't even the most harrowing in my opinion, as an African-American woman was raped by two men and then thrown off a building afterwards, breaking both of her legs and almost killing her, which gained no media attention at the time because the victim was not a white woman. Aside from being a high crime city, New York was also seeing a shift in its population demographics, with large numbers of Latino families moving into ghettoized, low-income areas of New York, supposedly forcing white New Yorkers to feel unsafe in their neighbourhoods and moving out of the city into the suburbs or into extremely wealthy apartment blocks with 24-hour security. From these race and income issues, which were creating a divide in the city, racial crimes became extremely politicised, with crimes against white people usually being blamed on people of colour, even if there's no evidence for it, and being seen as a form of frustration by people of colour for what they could not have, such as money, success and privilege, whilst people of colour became the victims of retaliatory crimes that were hailed by white people as white people taking back their city and defending themselves against the scum that was ruining their city. Horrifically racist and largely unprovoked crimes that were lovingly written about in the media as the heroes the city needed also became a call to action and a rallying point for white New Yorkers, and this case was no different. Aside from the media publishing all of the information of the supposed perpetrators, causing safety issues for the families who were targeted by mobs angry about the case, the Big Four newspapers scrambled to come out with the goriest, brashest and most tantalising headlines about the case, proclaiming that the teenagers were absolutely responsible. Aside from the media publishing all of the information of the supposed perpetrators, causing safety issues for the families who were targeted by mobs angry about the case, the Big Four newspapers scrambled to come out with the goriest, brashest and most tantalising headlines about the case, proclaiming that the teenagers were absolutely responsible, quoting the police who didn't help to stop these proclamations of definitive guilt even before these individuals went to trial. Some of you may also remember that, oddly, Donald Trump makes an appearance in this case as he used the media fury of the Central Park jogger case to make a grandstand advertising campaign in the Big Four newspapers, which apparently cost him $80,000 to publish, which in today's money would be nearly $170,000, concerning the return of the death penalty to New York State, which is being voted on in the near future. Aside from the fact that I personally take an issue with the death penalty anyway, Sarah Burns highlights a really important point in her book, that even if the death penalty was brought back, it would not be through hanging, which is what people were suggesting should happen to these teenagers, i.e. lynching people of colour, which has deeply rooted connotations in America anyway, and that it would not be for these crimes, as the victim was not murdered. Only murderers are sentenced to the death penalty in the US in the 20th century, and thirdly, only adults are sentenced to death, and as four of the five were under the age of 16, which is the cut-off for violent crimes in juvenile cases in New York, the teens would largely have been aged out of the death penalty. 
By this point, the Central Park jogger was also on her way into recovery, so there was no possibility of a murder conviction being added onto these teenagers. Overall, the entire death penalty argument in New York in this case became a reimagining of the common story from the era of slavery, of a black person being wrongly associated with a white woman in some way and being lynched for it. This point is largely a simplification of what Sarah Burns discusses, but I really highly recommend going and reading her book because it gives a really thorough discussion about this entire topic and other sources to read, which I'm planning on reading at some point as well. Due to these major issues of racism and politicised high crime rates in New York City, as well as the biases of the police towards their gut feelings that they had the bad guides and were coming in to swiftly solve the case, the five individuals, Raymond Santana, 14, Kevin Richardson, 14, Antron McRae, 15, Yusuf Salam, 15, and Corey Wise, 16, were all sentenced to maximum punishments of 5 to 10 years in a juvenile centre until they turned 21 and then were placed into adult jails. Corey, because he was 16, was sentenced between 6 to 15 years in state prisons. The majority of them served around 6 to 7 years for their crimes and had been trying to get their lives back on track. However, Corey served 13 years and it was a chance meeting with Matthias Reyes, a convicted rapist and murderer in 2001, whilst in Auburn State Correctional Facility that led to the truth of the case coming forward. After the two prisoners had had a conversation about their crimes, Reyes admitted to a corrections officer that he was the one that had committed the Central Park jogger rape. This led to a controversial investigation by the district attorney's office, who after interviewing Reyes, who remembered a lot more about the crime than the other teens ever had, compared his DNA with the samples they found on the Central Park jogger, which turned out to be a match, and compared the Central Park jogger case to his other rapes and murder, which had similar monikers, a focus on damage to the victim's eyes, the binding of the woman's hands in front of their faces, and the location of the crimes, found Rias to be the true rapist of the Central Park jogger, and had this added to his life imprisonment, of his other crimes that he had started serving in 1991. This crime has become critically important as a specific example of racial bias within the police system and the role that the media can have in the possibility of a fair trial. The artwork for this case, however, tries to follow a similar route as in Mourning and in Rage, by highlighting the commonness of these types of attacks, as although it was a horrific crime, it is not an isolated incident for many people around the world. The artwork, entitled Sabine Women by Carolee Thea from 1991, is named after a story from Roman mythology in which the men of Rome committed a mass abduction of young women from other cities in the region, which became a key historical subject for artists to paint such as Jacques Louis David in 1799 and a host of other artists. In Thea's interpretation, she depicts the scene of the Central Park or Jogger rape as the artist and the public knew of at the time. A woman on the floor, surrounded by five figures in various poses, raping her, holding her down and witnessing her assault. All of the figures are made out of chicken wire and are displayed in a black exhibition room with the only light source being from singular light bulbs that descend from the ceiling irregularly around and within the scene. Although this work does show five individuals being responsible, which we now know to be false in the actual crime, this artwork represents the feminist take of this crime that groups were trying to highlight as a secondary argument in comparison to the racial issue that was promoted by this crime, surrounding the extreme violence that women face on a regular basis at the hands of men throughout society. I think this is most arguably shown in the fact that the figures were made out of chicken wire, therefore removing the issue of race from the artwork and focusing more on the victimisation of women in a similar way to In Mourning and In Rage.
everyone and welcome back to Art Crime International. February seems to have been a bit of a month around the world. Hopefully we are coming to the end of lockdown 3 in the UK. Not that I have anywhere to go or things to do really, aside from sit in my room and work on this social media empire. I hope that you're all doing okay and are in a good place before listening to this pretty harrowing episode. I'm going to start the top of this episode with some trigger warnings. If you have been on any of my social media this month, you'll know that this episode will deal with sexual assault and rape in response to the It's Not Okay campaign that was at the beginning of the month. I recommend searching under the hashtag on Twitter for any resources or go into the campaign's Twitter page at It's Not Okay directly if you want to learn more or are needing help. This episode will deal with rape and sexual assault in a variety of forms, so we will be dealing with gang rape, rape murders, systematic sexual abuse against children and the cover-ups surrounding them. So if this is going to be an issue for you, please feel free to take your time with this episode or completely ignore it and wait for this next episode at the end of March. It will be a much lighter episode topic, not that I know what it is yet. I've split this episode into four parts to discuss the use of sexual assault and rape as inspiration for artists. Over on my Instagram, I've discussed a different artist and the story behind their work every day. Most of them are personal stories, but the four case studies I'll be using for this episode are four high-profile cases that have been used as inspiration by artists to highlight different issues. The four crimes I will be talking about are the Hillside Stranglers case from 1970s LA, the Central Park Five case from 1980s New York, the Steubenville High School rape case from Ohio in 2012, and the worldwide phenomenon of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, which has been placed under more thorough investigation in the 21st century than it ever has been before. For each work, I'll be giving a synopsis of the crimes that occurred, discussing the victims, the police work that arrested them, and then discussing the artists who have used these crimes as inspiration and a brief discussion of their work. I will be leaving my list of sources below as per usual, but I will be highlighting some of the resources that I really think are important to read, or that I just found interesting to read in my process. However, do proceed with caution for these sources as they do cover sensitive topics. I also want to highlight that I did try to be diverse with the artworks that I covered, but there is more diversity on my Instagram if you want to look at rape from the perspective of BIPOC, LGBTQIA, non-Western and male perspectives and hear their stories, which are often underrepresented in discussions of sexual assault and rape, which I think is problematic, but I have tried to rectify it on my social media as I only have so much time in a video to cover this topic. Now that I have given all my warnings and apologies, let's get into some harrowing crimes. Case 1. The Hillside Stranglers and In Mourning and in Rage If you're a fan of true crime, the first two case studies I will be discussing will probably be familiar to you, and you may be fully aware of their impact on society and law enforcement, but you may not be aware of the impact that their crimes had on some artists. The Hillside Stranglers were part of a time period in Los Angeles between the 70s and 80s where serial rapists and murderers seemed to be on the prowl, with individuals like the Golden State Killer Joseph James D'Angelo, the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez and Ted Bundy causing havoc, creating an unsafe feeling within certain areas of LA. The Hillside Stranglers, cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono Jr., like other criminals, created a media firestorm with their crimes, as they posed as undercover police officers and abducted, raped and strangled 10 young women and dumped their bodies around the hills of LA between November 1977 and February 1978. Although the media only picked up on their murder spree after the third killing, as the media did not care about their first two victims, Yolanda Washington, a black woman, and Judith Miller, a 15-year-old white girl, 
because they were both connected to sex work, the media began to create quite a stir once the death of Alyssa Castin, a 21-year-old white waitress and professional dancer for the LA Knockers dance troupe, had been found on the grounds of a country club out in Glendale. The media attention only seemed to further the pair, who went on to kill seven other women. Dolores Cepeda and Sonia Johnson, a pair of teenagers that were last seen getting off of a bus and into the Hillside Strangler's two-tone sedan. Christine Weckler, a 20-year-old honours student at Art Centre College of Design, who had previously been a neighbour of Kenneth Bianchi's. Evelyn Jane King, a 28-year-old aspiring actress who had been missing for over a fortnight before her body was found. Lauren Wagner, an 18-year-old business student who had been abducted from outside her parents' house and whose abduction was witnessed by her elderly next-door neighbour. Kimberly Martin, a 17-year-old sex worker who had been sent to the Hillside Stranglers by a cool girl agency that they had contacted and who was killed in a vacant apartment in the same block that Bianchi lived in. And Cindy Hudspeth, whose body was found in the trunk of her car two months after the Hillside Stranglers' supposed end after a helicopter spotted her abandoned orange Datsun on the side of a cliff on Angeles Crest Highway. However, it took Bianchi killing two women by himself in Washington in January of 1979 whilst house-sitting with them before both Bianchi and Buono were arrested and charged with the murder, as the police were finally able to link the similarities of the Washington crime with the Hillside Stranglers moniker. Although police struggled to arrest Buono, as Bianchi was the only lead that they had that placed him at the scene, and Bianchi tried to plead an insanity defence by pretending that he had multiple personality disorder, now diagnosed as disassociative identity disorder, and tried to blame all his crimes on one of his other alters, the police managed to confirm that he did not have DID, and was fully competent to commit these rapes and murders, and was able to stand trial and place Bono at the scene of each crime. Both were served life sentences in the longest and most expensive running trial in California's state history at that point, with Bono dying from a heart attack in 2002 and Bianchi still in Washington State Penitentiary and up for parole again in 2025 at the age of 74. Now that I have given you a brief rundown of the crime, let's focus on the artwork that was inspired by the media storm surrounding this case and the wider issues that it covered. Although the 1970s was a big decade for the rise of serial killers, developments occurring within the art world created the perfect storm for the performance art of In Mourning and In Rage, and that's in mourning as in funeral mourning, not mourning time, that took place in December 1977, technically at the end of the Hillside Strangler's killing spree before the last body was found two months later. Performance art was becoming a more explorative form of art practice in the 1970s, as artists tested the boundaries of what was to be considered art in regards to performance. One of the most famous works of this period that I was previously aware of, although it was created by an artist that has made other controversial works surrounding similar topics which I don't support, is Cut Pieces by Yoko Ono, which involved the artist sitting in a gallery and allowing the audience to cut pieces of fabric off of her with a pair of large fabric scissors. Although the first performance, which took place in Kyoto, Japan, went without any untoward actions towards the artist, the same cannot be said for the New York version of the performance, as Ono was threatened with the pair of scissors by a member of the audience, and also had to deal with some members being extremely perverted in the way that they cut material from her body, such as taking an immense pleasure in cutting her bra strap. A more extreme version of this work, performed by Marina Abramovich, entitled Rhythm Zero, had 72 objects that the audience could use to interact with the artist, such as perfume, honey, grapes, wine, scissors, a scalpel, and of course, a gun with one bullet in it, which someone did use to threaten Abramovich. 
Although performance art was not specifically a feminist art form, feminist artists pushed the technique forward by using the act of performance to demonstrate the role of women within everyday life and as a vehicle to talk about rape and sexual assault in an open, honest and often harsh and shocking manner. Suzanne Lacey and Leslie Liebowitz, the artists behind In Mourning and In Rage, were no strangers to this type of performance. The issue of rape was common in both of their realms of work, such as Ablutions in 1972, a performance in a studio where audio recordings of women described their rapes, whilst the artists bathed in eggs, clay and guts, were bandaged like mummies and they nailed kidneys to the wall. Or in Three Weeks in May from 1977, which is probably my favourite performance work, in which Lacey and a host of other artists held a three-week expose on the issue of rape in LA. Alongside workshops discussing the issue of rape and highlighting the works of other artists, the centre of the installation was two gigantic maps, one which pinpointed resources for victims of sexual assault, such as hospitals, shelters and counselling services, facing a map that was stamped with the location of every rape that was recorded in that three-week period. The bright red stamp symbolised every recorded rape, and the eight lighter stamps surrounding symbolised the eight unrecorded rapes that, according to statistics, may have happened within the same period. However, for this crime, In Mourning and In Rage is the artwork that I will specifically be looking at, as Lacey and Leibowitz staged a media event outside Los Angeles City Hall on December 13th, 1977, a funeral for the supposed 10 victims of the Hillside Stranglers. Just a small side note, the media at this point had linked a few other murders to the Hillside Strangler case that the police knew weren't part of it, which is why there are too many women for this funeral in comparison with the bodies that the police had found by this point. Lacey and Leibowitz, alongside the Women's Building, the Rape Hotline Alliance and the families of the victims, who they included in their project, played the media at their own game by providing an alternative perspective, discussing the larger issue of violence against women throughout society and an argument against the media perspective that had focused on the randomness and inevitability of these crimes and the circumstances of the women's lives that allowed for it to happen. Basically, systematic media victim blaming mixed with a little bit of fascination for these twisted criminals that were doing all these horrific things and what could possibly be wrong with these perfect but tortured souls to make them do something like this. You get the picture, it happens all the time. The performance consisted of a hearse motorcade arriving outside City Hall, in which ten women stepped out covered from head to toe in black mourning robes, with a coned veil shielding their head and making them appear to be about seven foot tall. Each woman spoke on the steps of City Hall, describing a different form of violence against women, such as rape and murder, ending each statement with the chant, In memory of our sisters, we fight back, before being covered in a red shawl of fabric to represent the capacity for self-defence and the deep-rooted feelings of anger that they all felt from this crime. The performance occurred whilst the City Council were voting on what to do with the $100,000 reward money that had been offered for any information that led to the arrest of the Hillside Stranglers that had gone unclaimed, which resulted in the money being redirected to more worthwhile organisations, such as to help with funding female self-defence classes that had skyrocketed in attendance during this period, alongside the sale of female gun ownership and other self-defence weapons, and also encouraged rape helpline numbers to be listed in the yellow pages and across the city in various forms. The entire performance was fitted around the scope of gathering as much media attention as possible, with the performance being conducted to fit within the frame of a wide-angled lens, and with speakers from different groups giving succinct statements about the performance and its purpose to state and nationwide media. 
I will end this section with the statement that Suzanne Lacey made to the press after In Morning and In Rage, as I feel that explains the purpose of this work the best, and realistically highlights what all of these works that I will feature are trying to achieve in some capacity, so here we have Suzanne Lacey's press statement. We are here because we want you to know that we know that these 10 women are not isolated cases of random, unexplainable violence, that this violence is not different, except perhaps in degree and detail, from all of the daily reports in the news media, from fictionalised mutilations in our entertainment industries, and from the countless unreported cases of brutalisation of our relatives, friends and loved ones who are women. Case 2. The Central Park Five and Sabine Women. <laughs> 